our, our task can't be just to be deconstructing things. That's fine and necessary, but ultimately it's about what we say yes to, not just what we're saying no to. And so my attempt to read Mark was an attempt to actually um, be about reconstructing a faith that is profoundly personal and profoundly political. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Exvangelical Podcast, where being labeled a heretic is a good thing, if it means refusing to conform to toxic, harmful expressions of faith. We address your questions about God, politics, how we got here, and how to move forward. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, spiritual seekers, and activists in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Ellen, and this is Holy Heretics. Our guest today is author and activist, theologian Ched Myers. He is a fifth-generation Californian, an author, and a scholar who has worked in social change and radical discipleship for more than 40 years. He's authored over 100 articles and more than half a dozen books, including the paradigm-changing book called Binding the Strong Man, a political reading of Mark's story of Jesus. He holds a BA in philosophy from the University of California, Berkeley, and an MA in New Testament studies from the Graduate Theological Union. And he and his partner, Elaine, live in Southern California, where they work with the Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. And their new book, Healing Haunting Histories, A Settler Discipleship of Decolonization, tackles some of the oldest and deepest injustices in American history, which sounds fascinating and also it has alliteration, just like the name of this podcast. So <laughs> welcome, Chad. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Melanie and Gary Allen, for having me. Well, Chad, I'm especially excited to talk with you. I, I feel a little bit kind of like a fanboy. Um, your book, Binding the Strong Man, changed my life. And, and I know that that's a, a phrase that is used probably way too many times, but for me, in, in a crisis of faith about 10 years ago, I was uh, introduced to your book, which crazily enough, you wrote, I think, in 1988, um, which I would love to know the backstory of that. But uh, for me, it was the first time that I was introduced to um, this radical revolutionary Jesus who stood in solidarity with the oppressed, with the marginalized and was just as concerned about what happens here and now, um, as opposed to, you know, maybe a disembodied future. So I, I just want to start by saying thank you. Um, you are probably the sole reason why I still call myself a, a Christian today. And uh, I, I just want you to know that your book really impacted me um, in, in some really incredible ways. So so thank you for that. So um I'll, I'll finally ask my question now. Um, so let's just kind of start there. Um, in the book, Binding the Strong Man, you you take a, a very deep dive into the fleshy Jesus, and, and you introduced uh, the world to the notion of radical discipleship. Um, can you describe kind of what that means and, um, you know, what that looks like to be a radical disciple of, of Jesus in the modern world? Well, thanks, Gary Allen, and um, both you and I were transformed by Mark's gospel. Um, that's, that's what does the transforming. The rest of us are just trying to figure out what it means in our lives uh, and in our world. Um, 
you know, radical discipleship um, as we use it. I was a product of a uh, movement in the English-speaking evangelical world of the 1970s, um, which called itself the Radical Discipleship Movement. Hmm. Uh, and although not too many people march under that banner anymore, we uh, persist in using it um, because for us it's it's not a dope slogan or a mobilizing soundbite or, uh, or a hip brand or an <laughs> ironic Twitter handle. Um, actually, both terms aren't even cool anymore. Radical is as unfashionable today as it was trendy in the 60s. Um, while the notion of discipleship is pretty much entirely shrugged off in liberal church circles and trivialized in conservative ones. Mm. So why do we insist on using the phrase? I guess because of the etymology of both terms, radical, of course, comes from the Latin radix or root. And that's the best reason, in, in my opinion, not to concede it to nostalgia. If we want to get to the root of anything, um, our vocation is to be radical. So no wonder that word was demonized by our masters and co-opted by marketing hucksters. Uh, and no wonder no one in conventional politics dares to use that word favorable, favorably uh, in our day, much less track anything to its root. So, it, you know, the, the notion of discipleship, on the other hand, it's kind of curious to me and revealing that Discipleship is actually so marginal in our churches. It's curious because it is so unarguably the central theme of the Gospels. Um, and it's revealing because it shows how wide the gulf between seminary, sanctuary, and streets has become in, in North America. So, you know, as, as I've tried to survey the, the terrain of, of churches in, in our society, it seems like the prevailing expressions of faith, at least among Protestants, is either decisionism, which of course is primary among evangelicals, denominationalism, which tends to characterize the mainstream, or dogmatism, which can sometimes um, be the mark of fundamentalism, but also sometimes people of all stripes. Uh, decisionism, denominationalism, dogmatism, are each problematic in our society, which is, is mired in dysfunctional politics, delusional economics, and distracted culture. So, so to as a kind of an alternative, it seems to me to make sense that discipleship is the road less traveled here at the heart of empire. Um, I, I believe that we have truly yet to reckon with Bonhoeffer's famous warning delivered under the shadow of fascism, that cheap grace is grace without discipleship. So one of my intellectual mentors is the great Swiss New Testament scholar, Edward Schweitzer, who reiterated Bonhoeffer's dictum by asserting that from the perspective of Marx's gospel, Schweitzer was a Marx scholar, discipleship is the only form in which faith in Jesus can exist. It's a pretty broad and deep statement. Um, and that challenge was subsequently advanced by one of Schweitzer's Australian students, Athel Gill, who's teaching of Mark as a manifesto of radical discipleship 
helped animate renewal movements in the 70s and 80s down under, and in the UK, people like John Vincent, um, and here in the States, um, our our community was uh, was deeply influenced. Um, so I'm I'm a child of that theology, and uh, still trying to figure out well what it is. Of course, it has a much deeper genealogy. Um, this notion of radical discipleship as laying bare the roots of personal and political pathologies of our society and our dead end history. Um, so on the one hand, we're, we're trying to get to the roots of what's wrong. On the other hand, we're trying to recover the roots of our deep biblical tradition, that movement of rebellion and restoration of repentance and renewal, that way out of no way that has been going on since mm -hmm. the dawn of resistance to the mm -hmm. dusk of empire. So, you know, that, that way uh, has been animated from the beginnings of our deep biblical history, Abraham and Sarai and Moses and Miriam. It's reanimated through the prophets. Elijah read the right act to Ahab and Isaiah sang a love song, lament to the vineyard. Um, and Ezekiel saw a wheel within the wheel way up in the middle of the air. It was this tradition that animated John the Baptist to go feral troubling Herod's business as usual, and then troubling Jordan's waters to rebirth a certain Nazarene upon whom the old spirit of the movement came to rest like a condor. Um, and Jesus, in turn, rebooted the old movement afresh, um, accompanied only by clueless fishermen and faithful women of ill repute. Um, <laughs> so this Jesus faces down the mammon system with loaves and fishes in the wilderness, remembers the old catechism of manna, re redirects our attention away from temples and toward wildflowers and birds, raises up street beggars and brings down fat cats to co-inhabit a jubilee common ground that his mama had sung to him about as a baby. Um, and although that, the Nazarenes movement ground to a halt on the Roman cross, on which the imperial bill for discipleship came due, it was rebooted again in an empty tomb, and so they say that's how it all began. And it, it has continued throughout church history, um, from Pentecost to the monastic uh, movement uh, in the latter days of the Roman Empire. Um, it was remembered by Franciscan nuns and friars. Um, and 14th century communitarians who defied feudal canons of hierarchy, 16th century radical Anabaptists who refused to participate in the bloody religious wars of Christendom, was invoked by Baptist radicals and Methodist reformers, Quaker abolitionists, Anglican visionaries, um, all working against the grain of colonial plunder and genocide. It was the ground on which 18th century levelers stood in their struggle against the privatization of the commons. Since this is Jubilee, sets all at liberty, let us be glad. It's how the Luddites resisted factory culture in early industrial England. Immigrant wobbly and Jewish labor organizers a century later in Gilded Age America. And above all, this tradition of faith was preserved for us by African slaves under American apartheid. Who knew who Pharaoh was? and where the promised land was.
and who journeyed there on an underground railroad singing, Go down, Moses. And I looked over Jordan and what did I see? And nobody knows the trouble I see. So these are all jubilee anthems, aren't they? And they came alive again in 20th century civil rights movement that reached from Selma to Soweto. That's a freedom song that was birthed in a Jim Crow jail and blew across the world to cross-pollinate to the Berlin Wall and Tiananmen Square and the streets of Manila. Um, so that's the that's the vision of radical discipleship. Sorry, there's, there's no soundbite answer because it's a tradition. <laughs> it's what Ruby Sales calls a great river that's been going on and on through the centuries. And we have to but dip down into it um, to be part of that stream that works against the stream of imperial culture. And that to me is, is worth giving my life to. Um, and it, it's, it's the best party in town, as we like to say, however uh, small and funky and marginal it may be. Uh, and that's, uh, that's church to me. Uh, and I think that's mm -hmm. been the best of church from the beginning of our tradition. So you're saying that this is like a tradition that has followed all of Christian history. So then how did we get to this point where we have voices like John MacArthur or the Gospel Coalition, or I don't even know how many thousands of pastors signed that um, 2018 statement on social justice and the gospel? How how do we get to that point where instead of resisting the colonialism and the empire, they're it, I mean it seems like they're colluding with it and and how how do we lose that tradition if that is our tradition like what what happened there? Well, we haven't lost that tradition. Um, that tradition uh, of radical discipleship has always existed in a church that has also always been compromised, at least since the third century. Um, so, you know, authoritarian evangelicalism is just the newest iteration of an old dysfunction in our faith tradition, which is to um, equate the conserving of the world as it is with um, the vision of um, God's kingdom, and and so I, I I don't dialogue with people such as those in the Gospel Coalition, um, <laughs> so I can't really speak for a lot of um, these folks. But uh, I do know that that there's always been uh, a sort of a um, a desire to. Um, a suspicion of change, a suspicion of difference. Uh, mm -hmm. who, who was it who were most opposed to Jesus of Nazareth? It was the religious leadership. Um, it only took a couple of centuries for um, Christianity to cut a deal with the Roman Empire under Constantine. And so we, we are not strangers to a kind of version of the faith that rides shotgun with uh, with 
systems of power and domination, and indeed often become apologists for that. Um, and and that there's a very strong streak of that in U.S. history from the very outset. Um, but it's not unique to the American story, and it it's just has certain rather aggravating iterations in in our history and. So, so this this conversation between what we might call um, discipleship versus um, dogmatism that that would be the tendency of the gospel coalition, I think. Um, on one hand, but on the other hand, the the, the kind of decisionist um, faith of many evangelicals who um, who really think that. The only important transaction of faith is to get saved, and everything else after that is kind of secondary. Um, it's a bit like a vaccination, I guess, huh? Um, right. Well, and, and I uh, want to. Can yeah, I jump ahead. in on that? Can I jump sure. in on that? Because that's the faith that I think most of us were raised in. That Jesus came to save you from your sins, and then. You made that decision, and then you sort of lived the rest of your life as a good conservative Republican American, um, and and the the notion of the gospel had very little to do with what actually happened here and now. Um, yeah. And and when I read Binding the Strongman, it was really, as I said earlier, the first time when I realized that salvation if it is going to happen anywhere it it happens here and it's embodied and it is about liberation and, and in particular there was this notion there that really changed my view of christianity which was all about jesus as a non-violent uh resistor that he resisted the powers that be um and he gave his life and and, and he changed the world through nonviolence but but that that notion of nonviolence and pacifism, especially in uh, the the American church, the white American church, it really is is anathema to many of us. Can can you speak about the nonviolent resisting Jesus? I know you've talked about it a little bit already, but this notion that the God of the universe was enfleshed in this historical Jesus who was nonviolent. And that was a central mark of discipleship, if I'm remembering that from your book. Yeah, I, I, I certainly want to talk about Jesus, but it's always important for us to understand the context into which we attempt to um, speak and embrace the gospel. And that the caricature that, that, that you drew uh, of you know, the business of getting saved actually is a very American phenomenon. Um, that, that is something that's highly characteristic of um, evangelicalism. But it hasn't always been fused with Republican politics. That, um, you know, your, your podcast is about the deconstruction of, uh, about deconstruction for ex-evangelicals. Um, and I, um, the last 15 years in our work, we've been working with a lot of the folks who have uh, found us and who are kind of fleeing from this uh, evangelical world and looking for more holistic, integral faith. Um, and there's been a lot of damage, as, as you all see. I think that's what's animating your, your podcast, uh, Damage Around 
God, around sex, around authoritarian notions of leadership, but above all, around church as shaped by the culture of capitalism. Mm. And so we, we need to understand how we got to this point. I think evangelicals began to lose their social mission after the fundamentalist split in the early 20th century, in which people turned further inward into kind of me and Jesus to really, to, I think, to escape the corrosive social alienation that comes with industrialization. This turn, however, <laughs> coincided with the rise of commercial capitalism and the explosion of the advertising industry in the first two, two decades of the 20th century. So slowly but surely over the last eight decades, um, with, I should add, a lot of big dollar encouragement from the business community, most evangelicals bought into the notion that the gospel is a product, that evangelism is advertising, that churches are enterprises, that church members are customers or worse, products, and that church leaders are chief operating executives. So it's hardly surprising that the old denominational structures, as they give way, have been replaced by a kind of entrepreneurial, autonomous ministries, big box megachurches whose campuses feel like malls. Rather than non-conforming to the dominant culture, as per Paul's instructions in Romans 12.1, many churches are just reproducing market-shaped habits and consciousness, whether it's race and class segregation in schools as well as churches, or suburban aesthetics, or worship as entertainment, or leadership as celebrity. So um, during this time, so that's the period now you're talking about, the last 50 years, during which period non-denominational evangelicalism replaced mainstream Protestantism as the official civil religion of the U.S., thanks in large part to the strategic rise of the religious right in the aftermath of the 1960s. So, so many adults today were formed and deformed in these spaces throughout the Reagan-Bush era. I think that's a large part of the folks that you're talking to. Um, the good news is, in my opinion, that despite a resurgence of the worst of white supremacist Christian nationalism under Trump, the glacial ice of imperial evangelicalism is beginning to break up. We see it everywhere because we're getting the refugees. Now, unfortunately, this most apt analogy is the fragmenting of the polar ice caps, which is an awful um, result of climate catastrophe. But, but that's what's happening religiously. The ice of authoritarian evangelicalism is breaking up, and all sorts of new little pathways are opening up. Over the last 10 years, we've seen so many streamlets of ex-evangelical life opening up, like the Sophia Society. Now, of course, a lot of people are drowning, too, and many are chucking the faith altogether. But that's, that's fertile ground for revisiting the tradition of radical discipleship. Um, and, uh, you know, when we talk about the gospel, about the politics of Jesus, you know, the religious right for the last 50 years started out saying it wasn't political because the old pietism wasn't political. Um, it was more privatistic. The religious right kept saying, oh, we're not being political. It's all those people on the left who are political. And ended up curating a thoroughly reactionary politics that was unaccountable. 
Um, now we have a politically polarized situation where civil discourse is impossible. So we 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 see the the task before us as people who want to remain in the faith to re-enfranchise the proper vocation of politics by insisting on its most generic definition that politics is nothing more and nothing less than about how power is distributed in a community. So everything is political. Right? Not right. voting is political. How we consume is political. How we engage in relationships, how we move our bodies around transportation-wise. It's all political, even spirituality, right? Disassociating from the language of historic Christianity is is a political move. Appropriating native rituals is a political move. Um, So uh, that, once we understand that everything is political, now we can go back and read the Jesus story and understand that everything Jesus is about is about how power is being distributed and shared or not shared, concentrating, um, uh, being abused. And, and you, you realize that he is taking place, his story is taking place in a real landscape in which there are real rich and poor, there are real militias, um, there are people dying from grinding poverty, there are folks struggling to survive as dry farming peasants on the margins and he's trying to say so what's the good news here for people what is um god's compassionate love and justice like in this moment so i i think it's a really great time to um not abandon the gospel but to double down on the gospel um but that that just is really hard for people who um have only ever received um this one-dimensional, um, highly hijacked version of the gospel. So I'm curious, because the book is about your first book, not the most recent one, but your Binding the Strongman is about Mark. And so what is it about Mark's version of the story of Jesus that shows us Jesus as that radical revolutionary um, or as that person who's resisting empire and colonization and, you know, speaking up for the marginalized and the oppressed. Yeah, sure. I, I would be the last person to try to make a case that Mark is uh, over and against the other Gospels. It's Mark is somehow uniquely has a radical view of Jesus. I think the entire New Testament um, is a witness to the radical Jesus. Um, it just happens that Mark is the first of our Gospels. Um, we know this, and not canonically, but historically. It's, it's mm-hmm. the first story to be committed to uh, papyrus. And uh, and so it, Mark has been the test, tended to be the testing grounds in New Testament studies for new ways um, or old ways of reading uh, Scripture, of testing out methodologies. So I wanted to test out a methodology of reading the gospel as um, a kind of a socio-literary narrative uh, that was expressing a community's struggle to survive amidst an extremely cruel slave-based Roman empire. In other words, simply to um, bring the, the gospel back to earth 
um, in that sense, you know, the old, uh, the old adage that parables are earthly stories with heavenly meanings. Um, of course, that's exactly what parables are not. Uh, parables are <laughs> earthly stories with heavy meanings, as my teacher mm-hmm. Bill Doug used to say. Um, but really, the whole gospel is like that. It's very much a story about human beings um, struggling for life and struggling for a modicum of freedom and relationality and sustenance um, amidst disparity, violence, um, and alienation. Well, we're, we're still in that story as human beings. Um, and so Mark's uh, gospel as kind of the first um, take on, uh, on that life of this um, recontextualizing prophet is, uh, is a huge resource um, to all of us who want to reconstruct faith. Right? It, it, our, our task can't be just to be deconstructing things. That's fine and necessary, but ultimately it's about what we say yes to, not just what we're saying no to. And so my attempt to read Mark was an attempt to actually um, be about reconstructing a faith that is profoundly personal and profoundly political. Um, and, and Mark, of course, is, uh, <clears throat> is in some ways the sparest, um, the most immediate of our Gospels, the shortest, which helps when you're trying to do popular pedagogy. Um, <laughs> as if folks don't have the attention span to, to get through a, a more than a soundbite, um, they're going to have a hard time struggling with um, longer Gospels. So Mark's a great place to begin. Um, InterVarsity um, Student Christian Movement understood that and uh, was all about tutoring uh, and encouraging college students to read Mark plain. And that, that was my first exposure. Um, I wasn't raised in the church. Uh, so as a young adult, here I was encountering the gospel, but without the kind of um, heavy dogmatic tutorial and frame that it so often comes with. And on the other hand, I had the great um, privilege of being mentored by um, some of the finest radical Christian folk in in the history of the second half of the 20th century. Um, and so it was, it was that way that I felt personally moved by in my own life and hence committed to um, propagating, I suppose, this amazing um, story of, of Jesus, who, unlike our churches um, or our economy, uh, didn't promise freedom and deliver captivity, but rather challenged captivity in the vision of freedom. Hmm. So Mark, Mark is great. How, so how how has that um, played out in particular in in your life? You just mentioned a little bit of that. Um, uh, do you call yourself a social activist? And if so, you know what what does radical discipleship look like in your life personally today? Well, I've been called worse than social activist. Um, that's for <laughs> sure. Um, well, let, let me make 
clear, first of all, that I call myself a Christian. Um, mm. There's there's a lot of particularly post-evangelicals who want to dissociate from all language, the historic tradition. Um, they they, they want to uh, they want to be free-floating signifiers. They don't want to be, you know, uh, labeled. Um, and then they immediately set about thinking of cool brands and labels that they can march under. Um, <laughs> I I don't find that useful. I found that very um, postmodern in the capitalist sense, um, trying to commodify our experience. Um, I do identify myself as a Christian for two reasons. One is I'm really trying to work out what that means through practice of theology. But secondly, um, to identify with Christianity is to say, yep, and that means we got to answer for all the crap. Um, and, and that's considerable that has gone under that name for 2,000 years. Um, not to do that, to, to, to imagine we can disavow that somehow and start fresh is disingenuous. It's, um, it's the opposite of accountability. And I think our challenge is to um, figure out how to um, atone for and repair the damage that's been done in the name of Christianity while trying to reconstruct a more humane and um, equity-based um, and life-giving faith. And mm. first part of that task is exhuming those parts of our tradition that have always inhabited the margins of the institutional church, which is like an ecosystem, right? The ecotone, the edge pieces are always where the greatest um, biodiversity is. Um, and that's true in the church too. So when I, um, you know, I call myself a radical Christian, that is someone who inhabits the margins of institutions with other folks who are working the margins of their traditions. So my wife and I are Mennonites, we're members of the Mennonite church. Um, and we value that tradition and apprentice to that tradition. Um, but we're not unaware of the contradictions and problems of that tradition historically, like all the other traditions. Um, in terms of my own discipleship, um, you know, I've, I've tried to work as, uh, as a popular educator and an engaged social justice activist. Um, really since I came to the faith in, in the, in the mid seventies. Um, and that, um, has had a variety of iterations as I've kept trying to open myself up to the terrain of, um, the pain in our world. So I worked for many years around issues of militarism, um, as a, as a kind of a primary hammer of an imperial culture. Uh, I worked for many years um, flowing out of that with indigenous people um, internationally who were on the business end of that hammer. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I then felt like after 10 years of doing that, I needed to come and work domestically and figure out how all that worked in our society. So I worked in Los Angeles as a community organizer issues of fair housing, racial justice, um, education, equity. Um, I lived through the Los Angeles uprising of 1991, uh, 1992, uh, Gulf 
Pact's first Gulf War in 1991. And those were, those were real focalizers for me and try to understand, um, what's happening in this culture. Um, it wasn't until the, the late 1990s that I, um, felt like I wanted to work e even handedly, um, as an activist and, and a theological educator. So, I wrote by, published by an in 1988, but I was not working in the academy. I didn't want to work in the academy, didn't feel called to that. I also didn't feel called to the ordained ministry. So um, for me, the question was, what is the intersection between seminary, sanctuary, streets, and soil? You know, what, what, how do we draw from the best of those aspects? Um, and, and, um, shape our our witness and practice accordingly and so that's why we started Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries in the late 90s um, as a way of curating both theological education and um, social movement participation um, so we've we continue to work on everything from immigrant rights to um, sustainable agriculture uh, <coughs> we live in work in a ecological demonstration project here in uh, the Ojai Valley on Shumash territory. Um, we're deeply involved in indigenous sovereignty struggles. Um, and Sabbath economics has been a, a major strand of our work over the last 20 years, um, talking about the dysfunction of market capitalism, um, indeed how that actually is a, is a heresy. And trying to exhume yes. the, the radical. Did you just say that? Yes, I know <laughs> it's your, it's <laughs> it's your uh, marching uh, brand. It's it's awesome. Um, <laughs> no, but you questioned capitalism. How dare you? Well, see, that's exactly what heretics do, and why they're branded as <laughs> such um, is they they question the the conventional wisdom. Um, that's what the prophetic tradition has always done right back to the mm. beginning. So uh, economic um, <clears throat> economic critique and engagement is a very big part of our work. So over the years, there are very few issues, social issues that we haven't um, been involved with directly or indirectly because one, one needs to kind of see the whole terrain. But ultimately, our, our interest is um, nurturing uh, disciples to work at that intersection of seminary, sanctuary, street, and soil to to always mm -hmm. try to hold all that together and to be Christian in that way in our society. Mm -hmm. That's 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 some heavy lifting, as you know. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and it sounds like your new book flows directly out of that. I mean, healing haunting histories. A settler discipleship, discipleship of decolonization. It sounds like it intersects with a lot of those areas that you've worked. So, tell us a little bit about that book and why you decided to write that. Well, thanks. That that um, project really <laughs> arises from my wife's story primarily, or at least that's how we decided to focus on it. Um, she is the grandchild of refugees coming from. Uh, Ukraine as Mennonites who were beat up pretty pretty badly during the Russian Civil War um, 
deeply traumatized and um, escaped and settled in the Canadian prairies. Um, wonderful community of people with deep faith, deep Anabaptist faith. Um, but here they were, they settled right next to Cree indigenous communities on the prairies that had been even more disenfranchised and displaced, including by Mennonites coming to settle. Um, and so here was this um, tragic irony of two traumatized communities living side by side and really not knowing each other. And uh, Mennonites, you know, over several generations, assuming white privileges and entitlements in a way that Cree folk never could. And so um, the, the question that the book asks is how do, do those of us who are the descendants of European settlers in North America um, make sense of uh, this, uh, this history of violation which inhabits every part of both settler and indigenous worlds, past and present. Um, these wounds, or what we call hauntings, um, are in inextricably woven into the fabric of our personal and political lives as settlers. Um, but we also believe that um, we are called by the gospel to not only confront, but to heal those hauntings. So the, the book um, tries to explore the places, peoples, and spirits that have formed and deformed us. Um, looking at it, issues of indigenous justice and our responsibility as settlers for justice, primarily through the lens of Elaine's family narrative, but arguing that every settler needs to look at his or her own um, family and communal history to see how we carry our forebears, immigrant travels and trauma, travails and trauma, um, how we uh, perpetuate our um, settler unknowing um, and agnosia, you know, refusal to, to know what happened in the past, our complicity mm -hmm. with these structures of displacement, um, and, but also what traditions of resilience and conscience that we that our ancestors drew on and that we draw on today. So it's it's been a, a really long project. It's part memoir, part social, historical and theological analysis, and part personal practical workbook, um, trying to um, invite settler Christians into what we call discipleship of decolonization, which is about um, undoing the incredibly deeply embedded harms um, that have resulted from hundreds of years of colonization and displacement of the first peoples of this um, continent. And so we're, uh, we're excited. It just came out last month, and we're already up to our ears doing workshops and talking with people about it. Um, it's kind of the first layer when, when, you, when it comes to North America. It's the first layer of um, of responsibility for for us, and particularly for people for whom the colonial regime has um, has privileged, um, which would right. be most of us, right? White white middle class folk um, whose um, hmm. um, ignorance and entitlements and um, privileges rest upon these deep histories, whether that's in Colorado or New Mexico or California, 
um, we we understand that landscapes are haunted by the violence of the past. Uh, mm-hmm. Just look, just look at look at the struggle, the historiographic struggle over the um, Sand Creek Massacre, not too far from Colorado Springs, right. uh, Gary Allen. You know, and the, the struggle over how one tells that history and what it means. Um, well, and how we cover it up or or we don't tell it. You know, and and in particular that that massacre, which was seems to be one of the most brutal and inhumane massacres in in American history, and you know we we like I think we like to tell each other lies. Um, we we especially about about our past, which means uh, a lot about who we are today. And yeah, it's it's interesting. One of the things we tried to do with our kids is in particular to to help them with decolonization is to study and and show them whose land do we actually live on and um you know let's look at that history and it, the word you said displacement and realize that you know this is not virgin land uh this is mostly widowed land that we inhabit and and sadly of course so much of that history has been wrapped in the flag and you know, the notion of imperialism. So uh, I, I think the work that you're doing and I can't wait, I can't wait to read that book. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Yeah. If, if, if I may say, if folks want to find the book, um, they can go to www.healinghauntedhistories.org, healinghauntedhistories.org. Um, and, and there you'll, you'll find the book and some reviews of it and, you can you can find a discount code to order it. So uh, yeah, we nice. we really are are offering this as as a practical workbook for settler Christians in this in North America. It's a binational book. We're talking equally about the U.S. and Canada. Um, <clears throat> they really want to um, encourage people to to wrestle with these issues. And it's and it's a time, right? The the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, Standing Rock. This is a time in which um, people are again broaching, uh, breaking the silence, and um, so it's yet another opportunity for white folks to overcome this mendacious culture that we've built around ourselves and, and uh, come to terms with who we really are. And um, and that that's good news for the gospel. That's about repentance, turning our history around. Yeah. And we'll make sure to link to that um, in the show notes as well. So people can find it there. Um, But since we are running out of time, even though I feel like we could talk about so much more, I want to ask you the question that we like to ask everyone because, you know, it's so easy to see what's broken. It's so easy to see what's wrong in the world today or what's wrong with the church or what's wrong with the Christian legacy. And it's harder to find those rays of hope. So for you, Ched, what what gives you hope for the future of faith and for the future of Christianity and for those who are uh, calling themselves ex-evangelicals um, and leaving the church, what gives you hope for, for them as they plow forward? I think we have to um, become comfortable with um, seeing hope on the margins and not expecting for... <clears throat> Uh, not keeping our eyes trained on the center or on the mainstream, because that's where hope, change have always, always, always come from, from um, poor people's movements, 
uh, from disenfranchised communities uh, breaking their silence. Uh, that's certainly true um, around the world, but it's especially true here in North America. So what gives me hope um, is people like you who represent it, who represent the breaking up of the ice pack of authoritarian evangelicalism and now are swimming in streams and try to figure out, okay, now, now what do we do? Who, who are we? How do we, how do we follow Jesus in this time? Um, uh, it's, it's a very confusing time because there's so many, the ice is breaking up in so many ways and there's water is running every which way. And it's a dangerous time because you can get hit on the head by a piece of falling ice. But, um, <laughs> but, it's, you know, there's some really interesting kinds of explorations and reconstructions, folks, reconnecting with the history of radical Christianity, which is a magnificent history. Um, especially in the United States. There's been so many Christian dissidents and Christian heroes of, uh, uh, of protest and of alternative expressions of justice. Um, learning, learning those histories, uh, I think, is a basic catechism for uh, ex-evangelicals that want to um, forge a reconstructed identity. Uh, the evangelical church always um, loves the fiction that it's the, it's the true church, but in fact, the church has always been multivocal and um, especially for people's expressions of faith, particularly the black church. It's a magnificent history of resilience and struggle and um, <clears throat> Survivance, as indigenous people <laughs> say. Um, so uh, it, it's the, the fact that things are, are slowly opening up in all sorts of different ways, both within and, and outside of the church, um, I take to be a sign of hope. Um, Reina Ortega is one of our colleagues we work with locally. She was born in Mexico, um, terribly abusive childhood pursued by gangs, um, came up, uh, a documented person, worked in the industrial celery fields of the Oxnard Plain in our county, um, and um, discovered the Abundant Table Farm Project as a local expression of sustainable, organic, um, egalitarian agriculture. Um, and Reina and then her husband, um, both came to manage this farm as refugees from industrial agriculture uh, and to watch them flourish. And, and now they're the managers of this farm and they're doing a man. Guadalupe um, is, is this, this incredible agriculturalist with these deep indigenous competences and he's making this beautiful farm on a shoestring, surrounded by a faith community that's working with them to shape this collective. Um, that doesn't follow any script. That, that doesn't come out of any mainstream seminary or um, evangelistic program design. But uh, this is what happens when people experiment with their own discipleship in, in ways that 
in the local areas they are. Um, and I think it's expressive of the kind of creative rebuilding that's happening um, all around the country. Uh, one of our young African-American colleagues is doing a PhD in scatology to try to figure out how to wean our culture off of one of our biggest contradictions, which namely is we defecate in our fresh water um, in our most precious source. And so how can we um, deal with our poop differently um, in a way that's more resilient? You know, that's that would have sounded kind of insane even 10, 15 years ago, but this is what some of our young colleagues are, are, are doing, and they're doing it from their own faith um, discipleship. We've got friends in North Carolina who are um, working on a carnival um, of faith and resistance to tell the stories of the earth, of scripture, and of social justice. Um, hmm. So it's, it's, you know, right, it's the, the worst of times and the best of times. And I think if we focus on the dysfunction, um, yeah, that's kind of a way in which they, they win over our hearts and minds through the negative space that, um, you know, that they curate. And so I think reconstructive practices of prayer and contemplation of community and worship um, and of social witness and service, those are, all of that gives me hope. And there's way more of that out there that makes the news or even makes the dominant social media. Um, so our, our job, and it is a job, we have to be very intentional about it, is to build our literacy in um, dissident, subversive, and reconstructive movements of the past and build our relationality with folks working on the ground now, whether that's the Poor People's Campaign that's working nationally, New Sanctuary Movement, um, the, the deep ecological um, movements that are being driven by people of faith. It's, uh, there's so much out there. Uh, a lot of our work is just helping folk connect with, with those movements. So mm. it's my hope wow. and prayer that your uh, listenership will um, commit most of your energy to seeking out what is redemptive, which is happening all around us and not, um, not take, tie up too much of our time and energy feeling sorry for ourselves and the funky dysfunctional institutions that we've endured so long, um, because that can just be a kind of privileged self, um, mortification. And, what well, means, and it's almost kind of a dead end too, right? Like it's just, you know, I, I have the privilege to deconstruct this as opposed to actually rebuild it. So uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a very encouraging word and a, and a convicting word, I think for, for a lot of us, but I think you are onto something there and in, in particular with uh, millennials and Gen Z who are already socially minded and they've already realized that what they believe has to matter here and now. And uh, I think, th I think there's incredible hope in that. So, all right, bef before we let you go, 
uh, we we do want to ask you just a couple of quick, like rapid fire questions. We do this with everyone. Let's see if I can do it. All right, here we go. All right, so Chad, first question: uh, What's your favorite thing about living in California? Yeah, I'm a fifth generation Californian, so it's deep in my bones. And uh, <laughs> I would I would say walking in the Oak Savannah, which is what uh, Elaine and I did yesterday afternoon. Um, where there are no invasive plants and it's recovering from the terrible wildfire of three years ago in this bioregion and it is flourishing. And that is my favorite thing to do in California. Mm-hmm. And that's surfing. Beautiful. Ooh, well, that sounds great too. Okay. So since you're an activist, is there a quick story of something that's just like crazy radical or revolutionary that you've done that other people would just be appalled at? <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots I've done that people would be appalled at. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite stories that I've written about was um, when I was 21, I apprenticed myself to some radical Catholic um, resistors back in the ghettos of Baltimore, and <clears throat> Phil, Philip Berrigan, the great Irish Catholic priest, the first mm. American priest to be arrested in protesting for war, was my mentor. And he took me into a dumpster. It was long before dumpster diving was cool. And um, <laughs> we were, we were, um, there we were, picking through all this rotting vegetables and so we could take it home and distribute it, you know, the good stuff to the neighborhood. And and I, you know, I, I just, he suddenly turns to me and says, you know, what, what is faith? And, and I just dumbfounded. And anyway, he, uh, you know, he, and he said, what gives you hope? I didn't know. I was mm. And I was in a dumpster <laughs> with, with freaking Amos the prophet, you know, what, what did I know? And he just <laughs> whirls, he whirls at me and he says, I'll tell you what hope is. Hope is where your ass is you know (laughs) like if you're going to be in jail if you're going to be among marginalized people if you're going to be in the mix on the streets where you put your ass is no matter what you say that is where your hope is and Mm. and that's a that's a great lesson for me that maybe some people would be appalled at Mm. i love that what's the best thing that has happened to you so far this year so far this year besides uh, this podcast interview uh we uh we took our own annual institute online last month uh, and i was very nervous about that but we had over 200 people um, wrestling with the issues that we write about in healing haunted histories uh, and particularly keying on communities of color and how they work in solidarity with indigenous folk. And we had Starsky Wilson, amazing new executive director of Children's Defense Fund. And we had uh, Stephen Charleston, amazing Choctaw elder and Episcopal bishop. Um, And we had some Allison McCrary, indigenous lawyer from New Orleans, working in social movements. Um, and, it, and that was just really cool to realize that there's a lot of hunger for being in a circle where we can actually talk about what matters and not have to kind of fend off the nonsense 
so that was, that was the best thing that's happened. Uh, okay. Since none of us can do this right now, uh, what's the best vacation you've ever taken? <laughs> Not my strong suit. Uh, <laughs> as, as my partner will attest, um, you know, we've, we've had a, we've had a number of really great, uh, opportunities in conjunction with travel for our work and we've seen some amazing uh, landscapes and amazing communities. I, I think of uh, New Zealand Aotearoa and working with um, Maori communities there and radical discipleship circles there. Um, it's really fantastic. Hmm. And my favorite vacation spot is just a little sleepy seaside town, just two hours north of us, um, where we go to sit, stare at the uh, stare at the water, and that's that's great too. Mm. <laughs> well, Chad, this has been uh, really fantastic, incredibly enlightening, uh, convicting. Uh, for anyone who wants uh, more information about the Bartimaeus Cooperative or your new new book, where can we point them? Uh, you can find Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries at uh, bcm-net.org. You can find a lot of our publications at shedmyers.org. And as noted, you can find the new book at healinghauntedhistories.org. Um, we're, we're not in the Twitter sphere or the Instagram gram, because um, we're just <laughs> not that cool. Um, but we do have some websites where you, where you can find us. And I, I just want to again commend you all for what what you're doing. Um, it's it's right at the um, heart of what needs to happen right now as things break apart. New seeds are being planted, and new um, plants are being nourished, and you're part of that. So I commend you um, for doing that and having a very nice aesthetic in your online presence and. Thanks for the hospitality that you've shown to me today and uh, as I blather on. <laughs> this is great. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you. And like I said earlier, we will make sure to link to all of that in the show notes so people can find that in one place. And um, seriously, this has been really great. And we have just appreciated hearing your perspective and from your immense experience. And I think a lot of people will be will be encouraged by it. So thank you for this, Ched. Thanks, Chad. We'll keep up the good work, friends, and uh, hope, hope our paths cross soon. This episode was written by Gary Allen Taylor and Melanie Mudge and produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith in Foxholes, and sound levels were mixed by Joshua Mudge.